0: It's November 25th, 2021, and welcome to Leaders on the Frontier. My name is David Leeson. I'm your host today. And uh, the Frontier Centre for Public Policy is about better public policy for a better tomorrow, and it's about serving all Canadians. We are an independent and nonpartisan policy think tank. And today, our topic is about our beloved country called Canada. Specifically, we'll be talking about A Canadian Manifesto, How Canada Can Save the World. And here to help us explore this topic is none other than the the book's author and our friend at Frontier, Lord Conrad Black, who's the author of widely acclaimed biographies on Morris Dupacy, FDR, Richard Nixon, and Donald Trump. He was for many years the head of Argus Corporation, Hollinger, and the Telegraph media groups. Lord Black is a financier and a columnist, and many publications around the world, including the National Post and the Epoch Times. He's also the author of Rise to Greatness, a best-selling history of Canada. Welcome, Lord Black.
1: Thank you, David. Glad to be with you.
0: Well, I'm delighted that you can join us today, and uh, we've got lots to talk about today. So I'd like to set the stage a little bit for our discussion. Um, I, I frankly very much enjoyed your book the Canadian manifesto, how one quote, frozen country can save the world. How did you come up with that title, by the way?
1: Well, that was Ken White, and I I actually somewhat objected to it, because uh, I don't think either where you are in Abbotsford, or where I am in Toronto, is really that cold. I mean, cities like Minneapolis and Chicago are much colder, much less, you know, uh, cities like Beijing and Moscow, and so on. So, I, I mean, I think we shouldn't be caricaturing ourselves that way, but Ken, uh, Ken, your fellow Westerner, felt that this was a good title, so I I, I yielded to his professional advice. Uh, uh, Thank you for your kind words about the book. It's the shortest one I've ever written, so that may explain its comparative popularity.
0: Okay, well, that's terrific. Um, So, Conrad, if I may, I'd like to just read a brief overview about the book to help set the stage. And uh, because I think it is a very powerful introduction. It says, chipper, patient, and courteous, Canada has pursued an improbable destiny as a splendid nation of relatively good and ably self governing people. But most would agree we have not realized our true potential. Canada's main chance, according to yourself, is that now before it Is not only the unusual realms of military or economic dominance. With the rest of the West engaged in a sterile left-right tug of war, Canada has the opportunity to lead the world to its next stage of development in the arts of government. By transforming itself into a controlled and sensible public policy laboratory, it can forge new solutions to the problems of welfare, education, Healthcare, foreign policy, and other governmental sectors, and make an enormous contribution to the welfare of mankind. Do you really believe that? I think it is possible.
1: I I, I don't take your question as asking me about the probability of it happening, but I think it's a reasonable aspiration that it, that uh, any Canadian could have and should have. Um, obviously, and uh, as as the citation you read makes clear the key to making Canada more of an influence in the world, responding to that utterance of Justin Trudeau's from two elections ago, the world needs more Canada. Well, you know, I mean, that's really for the world to judge and not for Canadians to judge, to judge, but to assure ourselves that the world comes to that judgment. The way to do it is not by flexing military muscles or threatening people the way that Chinese are doing with Taiwan, or the Russians are doing with Ukraine, and, and Canada is obviously not that kind of a power. It doesn't possess the ability to intimidate other countries, and it certainly doesn't possess the ambition to do that. And all of that is to our credit. But we do have the ability to impress people by how well we govern ourselves, and up to a point, at times in our history, we've done that. I mean, we, we, we've we've had this existing political system, the only transcontinental bicultural parliamentary confederation in the history of the world, and for all our frequent impatience with it, and even disappointment with it, it, it's served us now for, what, 154 years, and the only countries with a population as large or larger than ours that have had political institutions for longer than that, the same political institutions are the British and Americans, and and, the Americans had a terrible civil war just before our confederation, and the British did lose the whole province of of the Republic as it now is of Ireland uh, after the First World War. So, I mean, we're very, very competitive in terms of political institutions lasting and evolving and serving The country will, but in my opinion, we've fallen down in in, uh, recent times in terms of legislative innovation and moving beyond what effectively is the degeneration, I'm afraid, of democracy in in most democratic countries into um, redistributing more or less profoundly money from people who've earned it to people who haven't. Uh, bracket in exchange for their votes in bracket and calling it social justice. I mean, sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. We all, I think, want to take care of the disadvantaged people. And in a rich country like this, we want to we want to be sure that nobody falls below a certain level. But but uh, we can do better than what we've been doing. And what we've been doing has been the norm in the world since the 1930s. And that was 90 years ago.
0: Yeah. So I, that's how I took your manifesto as well as really an audacious vision for Canada, recognizing um, the history as you've as, as you've alluded to the extraordinary history of our country and how special a place it really is. Um, so one of the things that that uh, was very interesting is that you do begin with part one about the history of our nation, and uh, there's so many points that are so relevant for today, and I want, to, I want to offer a quote here. It says, we achieve freedom and full independence with almost no violence. And we have survived the pressures of demographic and cultural absorption in the American orbit. We have fought only in just wars, always with distinction and on the winning side. It is magnificent except that our progress has been so subtle and incremental that few Canadians think it has been at all difficult or unusual since the heroics of the earlier explorers and settlers quote. So what do you mean by that point? Do, do we not understand how special or unique our country is?
1: I think we have just a general idea that it is a splendid country. I mean, to just, if you just go in a train or or, on the surface in a car, everyone, but uh, from, the Saint Lawrence to where you are out in the far west, and, and and you know select your route with reasonable discrimination. You see what an awe-inspiring expanse it is, and at, at every place you encounter civilized and almost in every case decent people, and and you and, and you know I we don't any of us want to be. Uh, condescending to other countries but but it's a comparatively low rate of crime and and a comparatively low rate of acute sociological abrasions Uh, and 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 yet it's an extremely varied population in every respect and all of this all of this is good and i think canadians understand that but um but it it is not I'm, go- I'm going to oversimplify a bit here because these are very broad concepts and, and oversimplification is necessary, but I'm not just making this up. I mean, I've done a lot of comparative work and, and, and a lot of research in relevant areas, And um, but all of us with our you know, elemental knowledge of history, I think can agree that Canada is not an exciting place, but excitement historically is, is generally produced by drama And drama, in historical terms, is often, and indeed most of the time, at least somewhat violent. I mean, there was great drama in 9-11, but thousands of people died. Uh, There was great drama in Ireland's struggle for independence, but again, it was very violent and very prolonged. We haven't had that, Mm -hmm. so we don't have the drama. And once the Drama has passed; it becomes a matter of great historical interest, and it's not a current problem. But uh, as, as I said in the passage that you that you graciously cited, uh, I think Canadians who look into it can see the drama of the explorers and the settlers, and a man like Champlain having the vision he did, of a, in his case a French. Uh, civilization in the northern half of this continent, and and in Carleton, Lord Dorchester's case, the British governor towards the end of the 18th century, um, having the vision, a bicultural vision, mm-hmm. British, British together. Uh, and and if, if you look carefully at what Baldwin and La Fontaine said, or, or what uh, MacDonald and Cartier and their, some of their contemporaries said, they did have this vision. There is no doubt of that. They did have it. And I would say that... Other statesmen, up to living memory, have had it. I mean, when Pierre Trudeau, and certainly I disagreed with him on many things, but he was absolutely essential, I think, in defeating the separatists in Quebec, and I lived in Quebec then. When he said on the eve of the Liberal Convention in 1968, which elevated him to be Liberal leader and Prime Minister of Canada, he used the, the old French nationalist expression, "maître masters in our own notes, he said, "Masters in our own house, but our house is Canada." It it, it it brilliantly undermined the separatist argument that there was a place everywhere in Canada, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, for both the French and the English. They could live happily together, and they both had the benefit of each other. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this sounds corny, but it is true, and it is either largely ignored or largely taken for granted. And uh, and the fact is, we have. All of the resources, both the uh, talented people necessary, the receptivity of the public that is necessary, and, uh, and the wealth as a country and the stability as a country, to think in original ways in all of the key domestic policy areas, education, taxation, the economy, uh, all social services, all of that. And, and, and I just don't think we're doing it. I think I think we're just, yeah. you know, going around the same treadmill that we've been on since, since uh, you know, Mr. Bennett emulated Franklin D. Roosevelt in the 1930s.
0: So this is actually a very exciting country. But as you say, we don't have the, the drama, dare I say, the violence. And it begs the question that you make eloquently in the book that we don't really know perhaps how to teach our history or appreciate it fully. Is that right?
1: Well, going back to my own uh, recollections uh, as an elementary school student, I thought we taught the uh, exploration way, and and I think most Canadians are exposed to that, and we all remember what dashing people, uh, you know, most of these people were, like, you know, LaSalle, and uh, I mean, it's not generally known, you know, Diberd wasn't French, he was French-Canadian, he was born in three rivers. He founded New Orleans. He founded Mobile, Alabama. He liberated so,
0: wow. you know,
1: Havana, and he also chased the British out of, the, out of Hudson's Bay at one point. I mean, the, 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 this was an astonishing record, and I don't think Canadians, even French Canadians, have the remotest awareness of that, and there are a lot of things like it where Canadians did do amazing things, and I, I think we, I, you know, I'm not advocating we become a pompous country, or and much less that we disparage anyone else mm-hmm. I was talking about. But I, I think we should just know our own strengths better. And if we knew how brilliant we had been at times, I think we would more acutely understand our ability, if we want to exercise it, to do better than we're doing
0: now. Well said. So speaking of history, um, it's clear that you have a very positive view of our first prime minister, Sir John A. MacDonald. Yes. and uh, why is this why was his leadership so important
1: well as i've said even in the time of lincoln and bismarck and uh, palmerston and disraeli and gladstone he was he was a great statesman and he didn't he never crossed paths with bismarck but all of the others i just mentioned knew him and they all thought very highly of him and uh, the fact is he he saw He saw that Canada had to be united and it had to be autonomous or it was simply by one method or another eventually, whether by annexation or by simply the erosion of a will to be separate, going to be swallowed up by the United States. And that's not a terrible fate. I mean, there's a third of a billion Americans living just to the south of us. They're almost all proud of their country. They're right to be proud of it. It's a great country. It's not a terrible fate to be an American. But he had the vision, as did some of the people I mentioned earlier, and and many others, like Champlain and and, uh, uh, Carleton and and, uh, uh, and, uh, his colleague, Cartier, and Baldwin and LaFontaine, that Canada could could be not only not swallowed up by the U.S., but could be it could be a, a really interesting and, in some ways, a superior kind of country. Uh, again, I emphasize that is absolutely not a disparagement of the United States, the most successful country in the history of the world. But Canada could be both independent and different, and in some ways, a country that the U.S. would, like other countries, wish to emulate. And some of that has happened and some hasn't, but in practical terms, McDonald's saw that the only way you could put the country together was unite it with a railway, give it a mission and make it from the start an officially joint Anglo-French in language terms. Obviously people were welcome, uh, including the native people from other ethnic groups, but in official language terms, English and French. And on major issues, you had to have a double majority. You had to have the agreement of the majority of both the English Canadians and the French Canadians, or it would crack up. But the rest of the time, you could go with a simple majority as it broke out. And and uh, he, he in getting his railway finished, he he just as an illustration for you asked me why I admired him, uh, the Métis staged their second rebellion in 1885. And, and there was much talk of them seeking annexation by the Americans which would if they if they'd ever got together anything like a popular uh, request for that uh, the Americans could have had the whole center of the country it, it, this keep in mind is 20 years after the u.s civil war and when they developed the greatest army and the greatest generals in the world i mean it was not going to be the kind of challenge it was in 1812 if the Americans wanted to Take over any or all of Canada, and um, although you know the British would have objected, but they would have sorted it out eventually. And Macdonald solved the problem of this rebellion and the problem of the Canadian Pacific Railway half built and in a state of bankruptcy by maximizing publicity for the nation-saving role of the railway and getting soldiers out to the west, out to, as far as Saskatchewan. As quickly as as it did, much more quickly than it would otherwise have been possible, to save the country and put down the rebellion, which was true. And on the basis of that, he got parliamentary funding for the balance of the railway, uh, which the opposition was claiming was effectively a white elephant and, and was going to go bankrupt. And, and one year after it was finished, it was running a tremendous profit, and it was. I'm sorry to go on like this, but Canadians should realize this. it was one of the engineering marvels of the world. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the Americans had transcontinental railways a little before we did, but you know, they went across the Great Plains all the way to the Rocky Mountains. We didn't. From from, you know, from basically Toronto on, we had to go up into the Canadian Shield and laying a railway to the north of Lake Superior uh, on rock in, in in the 1880s was not. It was no. You know, it was not like pulling no, I mean, a plug. You know, it, I mean, it, it truly is like an
0: incredible accomplishment, and 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 surely that did reflect, as you uh, powerfully outlined there, the significance of Sir John A.'s leadership. And so, I want to switch gears a little bit with Sir John, because to be frank, was he a racist, drunken fool? I I, I guess where I'm coming from is that today we have a few individuals in our country that are busily. Um, how should we say, insisting on trying to erase history as if one can do that? And, 000, uh, yeah. you know, lopping off the, uh, you know, decapitating statues and trying to rename buildings and so forth. What is going on with our country? Yeah, well, no,
1: this is nonsense. Uh, now, on your question, is he a racist drunken fool? No, uh, he, what, he, he was a bit of a binger. He went through years where he didn't have a drink or had very little to drink. But occasionally, and this is not unusual, you know, uh, occasionally he, he he would be somewhat incapacitated from drink for several days. But that, that he didn't but he, he was he confined himself and, and you know didn't didn't embarrass himself in public. No no public business uh, was left undone for a dangerous time as a result of it. And and it was usually in response, not so much to political problems as uh, uh, problems in his family. He had he had a, a ch- it would be a, 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 now a challenged child, and he, and he you know he had a he had some difficulties that reflected nothing but credit on him and his handling of them. But in his family, that, that caused him as as they would cause anyone uh, great. Uh, consternation. Um, and and yes, he drank sometimes. Sometimes in debates it was clear that he that he had a, plenty to drink, but he was still a very effective debater. So, it, it, I mean, the same could be said of Winston Churchill. I mean, he drank a lot too, but um, it didn't uh, lead to the kind of allegations leveled against Sir John MacDonald. Um, on, on the racist thing, that is complete fraud. He had He had the the widespread view of the enlightened white person in North America at that time, that we had to help the natives and the best way we could help them would be to make our civilization completely accessible to them. He was a militant opponent of any discrimination against the natives. He gave them the right to vote. Um, He had allies in the native community like Pontiac and pound maker, and he took good care of them and treated them with great respect. And he, he But he assumed that the best thing the, the European originated or of European ancestry majority could do for the natives, the best thing was to educate them thoroughly and enable them to enter the, the social and uh, economic life of the rest of us. It meant some mistakes were made in the execution of that policy, without doubt. But you always look to the motivations, like mens rea, if you're laying a charge of a crime against someone, which some people have had the effrontery to do against John A. McDonald. Uh, his intentions were entirely positive, and nothing that he ever did or said was based on a racial or ethnic. Or sociological disparagement of the natives. He appreciated their good qualities. He was grateful to the support of the majority of them that did support him. And, and he tried to be helpful. And to some degree, he succeeded, and to some degree, he didn't. But this singling out of him, in my opinion, uh, by certain native leaders who were uh, the principal agitators for this theory that we, the whites of Canada and our ancestors, have effectively had some genocidal, whether cultural or physical or both, uh, motivations in regard to the the natives. Uh, They've singled out as a kind of what they think is an Achilles heel of ours, our most esteemed statesman and the chief founder of our country, and compared him to Adolf Hitler and other evil people, uh, just to do as much damage to our sensibilities as they can. And these are charlatans. They are frauds. They may be sincere in representing as they conceive at the interests of their fellow indigenous they may be although i I wouldn't be convinced of that in every case but but they are absolutely inexcusably mistaken in uh imputing to us such horrible motives and attitudes as genocide of any kind and what they're really leading up to is to to try and inculcate in the minds of the rest of us that we invaded their country in a way that is qualitatively indistinguishable from what Hitler and Stalin did to Poland in 1939. They wouldn't claim we were as barbarous as they were, as Hitler and Stalin were. That would be a hard claim to make, even for them. But that's what they're saying. We have no right to be here, and therefore we should essentially... Uh, give them a large part of the country back and give them a free ride for the rest of time because of the terrible things we did to them. And in furtherance of this spurious argument, they gratuitously assault our our most prestigious historic leader. And I am ashamed, I am literally ashamed of the failure of most non-native Canadians, most of the rest of us who don't happen to be indigenous, the failure of us to defend John A. Macdonald adequately and to defend ourselves a, 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 as a nationality.
0: So, so, so point well taken. We, we know that um, the the work with Aboriginal peoples has been challenged, but there's also been some very positive elements about that long relationship and honourable ones, sure. as you say. So why is it that our country is is struggling with, is it remembering our history? Is it, is it, are we um, fearful of offending someone like in classic Canadian fashion? What is it?
1: Uh, you you challenged me effectively to mind read our countrymen. And, and you know, that that that's, it would be a bit of a presumption to do that. It, it, it's hard to mind read a whole nationality and, uh, other than in extremely clear cut times. So, you know, You can well understand what the motive of the British was during the Battle of Britain, that kind of thing. But in the way you put the, uh, or or what the Americans after Pearl Harbor, it's pretty obvious what upset them and what they intended to do. But um, in this case, I think that you you get a mixture. I I would say most of the, non native specialists in native issues are are benignly and creditably motivated i think they recognize that uh, the natives do have many grievances that that uh, we we have not handled native issues particularly well and we and we should do better and we owe them something and i i agree with all of that i think i think we can all as a society agree with that. Uh, but on top of that you also get a, a range of subgroups there are, there is a group that has made a very good livelihood out of the native part of the victimhood industry and so this not, would be
0: more like the the quote aboriginal industry
1: yeah and and uh they look i i'm a capitalist and if you can make money legitimately there's nothing wrong with it but but we should understand that's their motive not uh not not uh, precisely because they really think that uh the, the comparisons to be made between John A. Macdonald and Hitler—I mean, a, a, a comparison paints them as similar people. Um, there, there are absolute hemophiliac bleeding hearts, to quote Ronald Reagan, who who buy into this nonsense and sincerely want to atone for it. Their sincerity is fine, and disinterested—it's not—it's not a profit motive. They—they're sincerely ridden by guilt, but in my opinion. That's largely because they've been misinformed about what actually happened. Um, But but in general, I think most Canadians would uh, would agree with the following statement. We've made a lot of mistakes dealing with the natives. We want to help them. We want to treat them justly. We want to do anything we can within reason to to allow them and, and encourage them, facilitate their full participation in Canadian life. And we're just looking around for ways to do it. And at the moment, the agenda is headed and largely composed, and this is, I think, a straight political operation by uh, by a quasi consensus in the in in the political arena across most of the parties that that the way to do it is to take the most vocal native leaders at face value and and try and give them what they're asking for. I mean, I I was completely flabbergasted when I discovered that that Royal Commission report, there have been a number of them, as you know, but the one that came out in 1996, actually advocated that we give one-third of the territory of Canada to to the natives who represent, what, uh, 3% of the population, something like that, uh, give them a third of the country and uh, and 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 we will cover all their expenses they pay no taxes and they pay no bills for operating a third of canada and we pay for that and that's some kind of a solution well this is just this is just the, the theory that uh, you know jacques cartier and 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 his successors as explorers and settlers um, champlain and so forth uh the, 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 that they were essentially morally indistinguishable in what they did, not the way they did it, but in what they did uh, to to uh, from indistinguishable from Hitler and Stalin invading Poland use my earlier example and um, uh, and and therefore we don't really have a right to be here so the least we can do is give them a third of the country. I mean this is not sane, but this is where we're headed and these are the underlying, um the underlying logical conclusions to the policy we're on. Uh, I mean, I remember, as I mean, I fear long on the tooth compared to you, but many of if we've got some listeners here, some of them would would be approximately my age and would remember when in 1968 the incoming Pierre Trudeau government had everyone joining what was then called, I believe, the Ministry of Indian Affairs. Uh, before it became a slander to call them Indians, that uh, that that the the, the the department was being shut down and they had no job security because Trudeau thought it was all nonsense and they should just be absorbed into the in, into the social safety net with some specific adjustments for them, and and this is the distance we've come from him. It happens to be a son who's the prime minister now, but in these what is it? Just over fifty years, we, we've gone from that to to. Uh, teetering on the brink of acknowledging that we were attempting genocide in these people, and owe them the restoration of, of a million square miles of Canada well, for uh, for three percent of the population yeah. is absolute
0: nonsense. So, so Conrad, your your book really does eloquently point out that our country is filled with opportunity, but the discussion the um, conversation, if you will, about Aboriginal policy is, is quite frankly, dysfunctional, or dare I say, delusional, like we have a mixture of things going on, like we have um, land acknowledgements, like practices where we somehow, again, as you allude to, um, the land is owned by um, Aboriginals. And um, we also have the whole notions of self-governance uh, that's commonly advocated now, Um, It it strikes us as a dead end in terms of the future of our country, in terms of of not just the future of Canadians, but the future of Aboriginal people. And it begs the question, who is serving whom, does it not?
1: Exactly. I I would say exactly right. Yes. I I mean, as you say, every public statement begins with we're aware of we're standing on the land of the Sioux or whoever it was. This is complete rubbish. Uh, they, they, uh, the native population of Canada when the Europeans arrived, we estimated 200,000 people in three million. 200,000. 200,000. They were nomadic people, except in the far west, near where you are, a little west of you. Um, the, I mean, isn't a wrap on them. They were very skilled, but it was a primitive civilization. I mean, they were 5,000 years behind Europe uh, in, in just normal development. They hadn't invented the wheel. Uh, but the, the, only in the far west were their permanent structures actual buildings they were nomadic people they had no fabrics they they used animal skins and they lived from fish and game they had no agriculture except a little bit in the Ottawa valley and again in the far west and 200,000 people they weren't occupying Canada no land anywhere in Canada was directly the land of of anyone because these these tribes and bands moved around a lot And uh, I mean, look, they were here and we owe them the respect that they were here ahead of us. But that does not imply that we we stole three million square miles from 200,000 people and should treat ourselves as barbarous invaders.
0: So now we are all fellow Canadians and we have a great country and we have lots of opportunity. I think the manifesto, actually, what's quite interesting is you were pretty audacious in the third part of your book. Talking about nineteen policy areas, if, if memory serves me correctly, including the economy, education, and healthcare. And um, if I may, I'd like to turn to the economy because that was certainly one of your major concerns in the book. And um, we need vigorous economic growth, Conrad. And so I, I think you're not a, you're not in favor of the carbon tax. I gather is that correct?
1: It's rubbish. I mean, look. <laughs> sometimes you have to raise revenue, and there are, and 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 then you find the most effective and within the bounds of meeting the goals you have to reach a uh, painless way of doing it but that was just uh, that was just hypocrisy it, it was part of the war on the oil industry for spurious reasons of invocation of climate change and uh, and and and, and so it was—it was really just tax increase masquerading as saving the planet.
0: Yeah, and,
1: and it was always—it was always just bunk. I mean, if you yeah. want to raise taxes, the way to do it is—is is raise taxes on financial activity, transactions that aren't essential. So you, you don't people don't pay more buying groceries. They have to have groceries. So you don't make them pay more. For
0: mm-hmm.
1: them. And then they don't pay more for shelter up to a certain point. But but when they when they're doing things that they could do without with, at no great penalty to themselves, uh, again I'm not talking about buying clothes for children or you know that I mean that sort of thing. people have to do that you, know, you know, make it as easy for them as you can. But if you and I go out tonight to a five star restaurant with some friends, and, you know, clock up a bill of eight hundred dollars. It was a thousand dollars. It wouldn't kill us it would kill us, we would go to a less expensive restaurant, but, or, or eat otherwise. But, so it, it's, it's as close as you can get to a voluntary tax, so it's much more painless and difficult to collect. You don't have everybody scrambling around uh, the, you know, the loophole industry and paying uh, accountants and lawyers uh, huge, huge invoices to, to skirt around the rules. And, and, and you get a sense of fairness. The people who are paying are, are, are paying because they are uh, uh, buying a luxury that they can afford. Well, if they can afford it at X, they can afford it at X plus 20%. So, yeah, I mean, that's the easiest and most painless way. Uh, to to raise revenues. And that was a contribution to the history of this country from Brian Mulroney, and he's received very little credit for it. Now, a subsequent prime minister, Stephen Harper, who was in many ways a very good prime minister, got it into his mind that if you lowered the HST, you would permanently cap public sector share of GDP. Mm. But he didn't allow for profligate, reckless deficit financing. This is a country that ran 14 straight federal budget surpluses, both major parties in office, great credit to both of them, and, and the ministers of finance, uh, jean, and prime minister jean Cretin, Paul Martin, uh, Jim Flaherty, Stephen Harper, and so on. And, 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 and who could foresee that we would then elevate a regime whose leader would say, well, the deficit takes care of itself and just treats the whole thing as a joke. Well, you know, this game of just expanding the money supply, and and paying for it by having in effect you know this quantitative easing is effectively a uh, a subsidiary of the treasury paying buying the country's bonds with notes issued by the treasury i mean if you did that in the private sector in commercial life you you'd you'd, you know you you'd get a very sharply worded letter from the attorney general or the crown law office and and you know, it's a, it's a scam. And, and, you know, scams can be immensely creative. But you can't do them indefinitely. And that's where we're going. And it's it's very dangerous. Now, look, I'm not a hair-shirted guy. I had no problem with FDR, of whom I'm an admirer, as you know. And I wrote a large book about him. I mean, most conservatives, which I am, don't like him. But I think he was actually, as he said himself, a great conservative. I mean, he took over a country where the economy and the economic system had collapsed. He preserved 95% of it at minimal cost to the country. And for good measure, he led us through World War II and the total defeat of our enemies. But, uh, but he ran substantial deficits, but he, he didn't just throw the money out of the windows. And to the limit that he could do it, instead of just distributing welfare, he devised these huge workfare systems that, that employed up to 15% of the workforce at a time hmm. during the Great Depression. That's how we got in the United States: the Intracoastal Waterway and a lot of the highways and the national parks and airfields and all manner of things. So those of your uh, uh, of your people who know New York City well would know uh, the Lincoln Tunnel, the Triborough Bridge. I mean, yeah, Roosevelt built that with cheap labor, but it, mm-hmm. but the, but but he maintained these people, and they weren't just idle uh, sitting on a
0: dole. Now you published the book, the Manifesto, in the spring of two thousand nineteen. I'm quite amazed by, how do you say, the relevance, the frameworks of thinking today. And, but today is, is obviously a different time, as we've talked about so many times, Conrad. But we have the emerging ugly head of inflation, higher interest rates. We have record uh, deficits and debts, as you've alluded to. Our our Charter of Rights and Freedoms is under attack. We have a lot of woke universities um, lowering productivity, a loss of business investment. Gosh, there's a couple other things that we could reflect on as well. We have almost an endless range of lockdowns because of COVID-19 and all the impacts, both human and economic. Those are just naming a few, Conrad. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. You? Thank you for your kind words about the yes <laughs> I, I couldn't foresee, and as you implied, neither could the rest of us, uh, um, the, all these things. I mean, who could see a coronavirus, for example? It was impossible to foretell eh? And um, look, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms always had its problems, but in fairness, the problem with most of us who wondered about it at the time it was adopted, including Pierre Trudeau, the chief author, was the invocation of the notwithstanding clause. And and the only times, as, as far as I know, I know, I think there was one case on another matter, um, I think having to do with abortion, but I'm not certain of that. But apart from that, I, I believe the only times it's been invoked have been in Quebec where they Liberal or party Québécois government, both on different occasions, have objected to. I um, uh, well, they, they presented language legislation that was objected to by elements within the province, and and, uh, and ultimately the notwithstanding clause was invoked to overrule the Supreme Court of Canada because property and civil rights have always been a provincial prerogative. So that was always a vulnerability of it. But uh, but I couldn't agree more. We are now having people. Chastised and shut down and threatened, cancelled as the as the expression goes, for for uttering perfectly defensible opinions that run contrary to prevailing wisdom. But they don't defame anyone. They don't incite anyone to do bad things. They just dissent from certain elements of public policy or public attitudes. Well, if we're getting to the point where dissent itself is deemed to be an offense to free speech or freedom of expression, then obviously the concept of freedom of expression is simply Orwellian you speak. It's the opposite of to be, Yeah,
0: and and on that point, Conrad, then, are we at arguably one of the lowest points in Canadian history? Because as governments offer this kind of dysfunctional policy and this kind of response to enabling really what should be a, a vigorous public discussion, we actually undermine trust in our very democracy.
1: I am afraid that is true, and it is compounded by the monochromatic nature of the traditional media, and uh, uh, and and I I must say, in many ways, the unprofessional um, conduct of the media. I mean, as you alluded in your um, generous introduction, I, I spent a long time in the newspaper business, and always we were proud of and rigorously imposed the distinction between opinion and reporting and we required the reporting to be absolutely down the middle but any reporter or anyone else who 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 wanted to get something off the chest if it was of adequate literary quality not any filtration for the nature of the opinion expressed as long as it was characterized as an opinion we'd run it and the more variety we had the better Right. And, and th- that was well appreciated by readers. Now you see the polling that takes place in this area in every case here and in other countries, particularly in the United States, uh, highlights the public's distrust of the media. Well, that is very dangerous. Unfortunately, it's completely justified. You can't trust the media. You can trust some of them and you can trust, some, you know, to take a phrase from Lincoln, some of them, some of the time. But, uh, but if you have a society, which we now largely do, where one of the greatest pillars of it, one of the most essential uh, foundations of a functioning and vital democracy are, are a free press and a, a, and a, a curious media. Uh, where you have that so mistrusted, as it now is because of its own conduct, so rightly distrusted, you shortly get a lack of interest in the continuance of the free media,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: that that is a that is a step to authoritarian government.
0: Precisely. So, I think that that larger perspective that you uh, just outlined, we have these essential pillars that are significantly weakened, and if those pillars, including a free and vigorous media, is um, is weakened, uh, it makes our democratic system um, greatly undermined.
1: I, may I just mention this? I think we have some parallel things happening. Here. One is the prestige of the system is sinking, and that's partly illustrated by the decline of the quality of the media. The quality of the media will continue to decline until we improve education. The state education systems of all of our Western countries have failed. One of the great ironies in modern times is all all of these advanced countries spent more and more and more on education to get less and less well-informed graduates. And in the United States, because the tuition fees are so high in university, they have a trillion dollars of student debt, mainly for people who studied things at university, that you cannot possibly make an income, a livable income, out of when you leave university. So it, it, is, it is inadvertently mistaken all the way along the line, and, and we're, we're having to pay the cost of it now. I mean, essentially, university schools are largely daycare centers, and 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 universities are devices for keeping people out of the labor pool and reducing unemployment, but at a hideous cost, not only fiscally but in the under-information of the alumni from that system. Uh, And finally, on the economic side in this country, we have a steady erosion of capital to a greater and greater extent. Money made in Canada, corporately, is being shipped out of the country. The, uh, The corporations are voting because of the stakeholders' interest, the shareholders want increased profit and highest quality application of earned funds, and that's not in Canada. All of this is reversible. Wow! Yeah, so, so one, just one final point. Yes. And I'm sorry to be so uh, verbose, but I put it to you and and to your other people on the uh, on this on this Zoom that. We do not now have the quality of people in public life that we had when I was a youth. I mean, I'm old enough to remember. I didn't know much about them, but I remember Mr. Salo, and, and later I met him. Uh, I, I I remember Mr. C.D. Howe. I remember, you know, from St. Western Canada, James Gardner. I mean, I didn't. I, I mean, I remember them as public figures, and and they they were strong, good men. They were very competent, and they did a lot of great things. You know, they, uh, it, it, and, you know, in in, the, in World War II, we trained 125,000 aviators. I mean, it was a country of grandeur. Mr. Saint Laurent started the St. Lawrence Seaway again, one of the wonders of the world. Mm-hmm. What are we doing now? Where is it? Yeah, well, Where are, uh,
0: You know, it, it's amazing, that, that overview of, of leaders. This was precisely the question I was going to ask you. You have had so much contact with arguably extraordinary leaders of past generations. You've, you've known Margaret Thatcher well, Ronald yes. Reagan, right. um, virtually every prime minister in power um, the last several years. So you, you have a perspective on the governing elite, and it, it's very humbling. I know that a, a dear friend of mine, an extraordinary entrepreneur, said, I have believed in Canada because we could always count on it having rock solid governance. And he said, David, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't have that confidence anymore. What has happened to our governing elites? What, it's went a off comfort, the, rails? The, the And that's the issue.
1: It's the elites. The institutions are the same ones that were made to work so well building the country by McDonald and Laurier and Mr. King and others. Uh, the problem is the people who hold the offices, and and uh, and, and look, I, I have no standing to judge whether the civil service has deteriorated, but I doubt if it has. And in any case, ultimately they'll respond to to mm. political requirements of, of, of integrity and and uh, thoroughness. But uh, we're not expecting the civil service to write the public policy ticket for us. I mean, we've got to elect people to do that. That's a democracy, and. And I don't think the quality of these people is comparable to what we knew a, a generation ago. Any of us, and 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 I don't I don't really know the answer to that. I, I to some extent we had greater challenges then. I mean, the the whole separatist thing was a terrible challenge. We got a lot of very fine people involved in public life because of it in both parties. I mean, it was a big issue for. Robert Stanfield and Joe Clark, and certainly for Brian Mulroney, as well as for the, for the, for the Liberals, Pierre Trudeau and uh, John Turner and Don McDonald, and people like this, all of them, you know, distinguished people and and, uh, and, and very highly motivated people. And I, I, I don't want to take cheap shots of people mm-hmm. who are in government or in the opposition now. I mean, it's a tough life. They yeah, It's uh, politician's you know they, they they're often criticized for being paid a lot and not doing much but it, it's not an easy life. but we had better people who did a better job and the reason why it slipped is not obviously clear but my fear is the the deterioration of the media and and, and the the spirit of the media has become so hostile to anybody trying to do anything that that it it it, it demotivates a lot of people a lot of our most talented people who 20 or 40 or 60 years ago would have gone into public Mm -hmm. life a very promising young man like john turner i knew him at the start of his career he he married my father's goddaughter i I, and and a man like that wouldn't go into politics now he'd say the hell with that i'd rather i'd rather be rich which john certainly could have become if if Mm -hmm. that's what he wanted to do
0: but your thesis your, your thesis is surely apropos that these things are interrelated. Um, the media has an impact, certainly, on setting the the tone of debate, if you will. Our culture is um, certainly does not necessarily have an emphasis on service uh, or public service, as we've observed, or citizenship. Um, I think one of your, your friends, uh, Victor Hansen, has spoke eloquently about the decline or attack on citizenship. And yes. I think that's very evident in our country, is it not?
1: I'm afraid it is. I mean, it's even more evident in his country, where where you have know, millions of people that are effectively allowed to vote, even though they're not citizens, in complete contravention of the constitution. But um, that's a contentious issue, and the last chapter hasn't been written yet. But they can't go on like this with 200,000 people a month just pouring across their southern border. Um, but but we, fortunately, we have nothing like that stage here. But uh, um, of course, you're right, and, and it, it's, it's just very hard to get your arms around it, but I'll say this. I think if we had political leadership that spoke of these things the way we are now, and in office produced a serious program that was original and appealed to the Canadians' uh, somewhat sublimated ambition to be taken more seriously in the world than we are, and said, these are original things. Uh-huh. And this is what we have There was a bit of that with Mr. Pearson. You know, and very few people can remember that far back. When we brought in a new flag, he brought in the pension plan. He had, you know, he had the company of young Canadians. He had all sorts of interesting ideas. I mean, they didn't all work out, but it was lively. You know, yeah. and, and most of it worked. And if we just got back to originality, avoidance of platitudinous disguises for simply redistributing money with votes in mind, and and got back to building the country and incentivizing uh, private sector, public sector cooperation in the tax system. Uh, This country would do a 180 degree turn in its economic performance and in its morale and state of mind.
0: Okay, so I think that's a...
1: Your uh, and we got the people to do it, but they're not in
0: place. But that strikes me as a as a great uh, challenge for action, is to for decision makers, these quote governing elites, to elevate the level of discussion and tell it the way it is. I, I think sometimes would you would you agree that they they assume that um, Canadians are are stupid, that we don't necessarily see through a lot of this um, rhetoric and airy debate? I'm split.
1: David, I don't think they so much think Canadians are stupid. They they, they don't realize how inadequate they themselves are. Okay. <laughs> yes. So they think okay. Canadians are smart to elect them. So they don't think yes. they're so stupid to elect them. No. Uh, I mean, I'd give everybody that, though.
0: Okay. I, I just I don't wanted... think
1: there are politicians in this country out there saying, I'm running for election because the people in this constituency are so hopelessly stupid. they. Okay. Might vote. <laughs>
0: I I did want to read something to you and it has to do with a column that you wrote um, at the end of October. And it really struck me. I I know you told me that you were on some uh, trips to um, around the world, including the UK. And it says, like most people when absent from the country where they reside, I always do my best to put Canada's case forward as persuasively as I can to doubting foreigners. My explanation for a permanent flag in official mourning over the Canadian High Commission in the greatest public square in Britain was greeted with universal and not always polite incredulity. It is a challenging posture to try to defend. For reasons that he will perhaps someday make clear, Trudeau has taken it upon himself to go to unheard of and absurdly histrionic lengths to propagate the historic fraud that Canada should be permanently ashamed of its treatment of the native inhabitants of the land. And then you go on further in that in detail. And I was, I was struck by that image of you driving around Trafalgar Square. Yeah. And seeing the flag at half mask. And it begs the question in my mind, how, I mean, you, you have contact with an enormous number of people. How is Canada viewed these days from your perspective internationally?
1: Look, it's almost reviewed, I think, viewed and reviewed as, as a good country it's a an impressive presence on the map and those who know it and seen it know that it's physically an impressive country from st Lawrence and Niagara Falls to the Great Plains to the Rocky Mountains and and, and elsewhere um, they know that they know that its history is absolutely benign with what you quoted at the beginning you know we you know we we We've never been guilty of any imperialism. We've only participated in four wars. We sought nothing for ourselves. I mean, in the world wars, we were not under attack by anybody. And we contributed uh, nearly between the two wars, two million people, all, almost all of them volunteers, and uh, for the cause of freedom throughout the world. Canada wasn't seeking anything, and we weren't under attack. We didn't have to go to war. I mean, the Americans were attacked and the British were attacked, but we weren't attacked. But we we did it for a greater cause. And people respect that. And and um, and, and most Canadians that get around in the world uh, get around because they're somewhat successful and are well regarded. Uh, so the view of Canada is it, it's a it's a slightly scaled down version of a sleeping giant. It is seen to be a very good and I don't mean good and a fatuous or, or uh, simplistic way. I mean, a, a benign place, intelligent people in a rich country conducting themselves as a country, always in a responsible way, but a bit colorless, a, a bit lacking in that sort of fizz and path of some more flamboyant nationalities like the French or the Italians, where they have their own language for their own country. And, and um uh and 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 we're just waiting for something more i mean it's obviously a country that i mean people my age remember it when it was a dominion which is essentially a half colonial status and they now see it as a g7 country and much more featured in the world it used to have a flag with the union jack in the corner and now everyone recognizes this flag even if it's flying over canada house and trafalgar square at half mass for months on end which which is commented on it's just a very odd thing i mean if the president of the united states dies they lower the flag on their embassies for 30 days but but you know not like this and and um uh, so they're waiting for us they're saying you know look it's we you know canada we know it it's a good place the good people but you know you should be stronger in the world
0: very good well on that note uh, lord black i want to thank you so much for joining us today and i'm very grateful that we could have this discussion. I always marvel at your vocabulary and I've always admired your columns and your books and uh, just thank you so much for your leadership. I know that on a personal level you've commented to me several times about how the need to be courageous and to uh, not, not turn to fear but rather to action. So I'm really grateful for your leadership by example.
1: Uh, Thank you, Dave. Thank you very much for your gracious words. Thanks for your invitation and thank you for what you people at Frontier are doing. You're, you're part of the
0: solution and good luck to you. Thank you so much. Well, I, on that note, I'd like to uh, thank all of you for also participating in our webinar. We were able to get through a number of the questions uh, today, and I'm sorry that we were not able to get through all of the questions that were posed to uh, Lord Conrad Black, but I want to encourage all of you to continue to be involved as Friends of Frontier and to make sure that you um, uh, sign up for our newsletter, and we certainly welcome your comments and encouragement. Be sure to join us for Next Leaders on the Frontier when columnist John Robson will be joining us on December the 23rd, where he will be smashing the top five climate crisis myths. And then on January the 20th, we are pleased, delighted to announce that the Honorable Brian Peckford, the former Premier of Newfoundland, will be joining us to discuss the history and current assault on our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Please join us and be sure to invite others. Thank you to all who continue to donate to the Frontier. You make our mission possible, and we're very grateful for that. Frontier does not accept any government funding, so your support is welcomed. Thank you. And that's it for today. My name is David Leese, and uh, we're so glad you could join us. And wherever wherever you are, be sure to ask good questions and debate them. And um, as we all work together to build a better country. On behalf of all of us at Frontier, thank you for joining us.